You are listening to an ODI live event podcast. You can find out more about events and research by the Overseas Development Institute by visiting our website, odi.org. Good afternoon. Uh, I'm Jonathan Rosenthal. I am Africa editor of The Economist magazine. Uh, it is my great pleasure to be uh, involved in this panel and to, to introduce you to some uh, panelists uh, to talk about today's event, which is really, uh, you know, while we're head down in the middle of this COVID crisis and, and the economic fallout, is to start thinking a bit about what this means for uh, financial services, how do we regulate, what are the trade-offs, um, uh, you know, how, yeah, how, how do we start seeing our way out of this. Um, it's probably against the rules to start one of these things with, uh, with an apology, uh, but I'm going to do that. And, and the apology is as follows, that we're all still getting our heads around trying to you know, work from home. It, it, it has certain advantages. Uh, you know, some of us uh, may be in the office today wearing our, our slippers, uh, I'm not saying who, but uh, there are also certain disadvantages. And, and one of those may be that you know, we can we can shout at our teenage children to keep quiet, but it's not so easy to shout at the neighbour who insists on mowing the lawn at uh, all time every afternoon. So, so apologies in advance. Uh, we're also having some slight technical difficulties. So, two of our panelists right now, uh, and Zetsewere and Judith Tyson, uh, have been struggling to dial in. Hopefully, they will be able to join us. Uh, but in the meantime, you know, we, we we've got the rest of the panel. Uh, and today's conversation is, is, is going to focus uh, uh, on a couple of questions. And, and just to lay the ground, the first is that um, we're looking at you know, severe economic impacts from COVID. The, the, the latest World Bank forecasts are for a fall in output of uh, you know, between you know, 2.1 and 5% this year. Um, that's you know, lost output of, of between 37 and $79 billion. Uh, I think that there may be some of you who, who think that these estimates are perhaps a little on the uh, optimistic side. Um, so, so we've got the crisis that we're dealing with, but uh, it's also uh, worth reflecting on and thinking about some of the longer term issues. And one of these, the first question that, that I think this panel can, can look at is, what are the post-COVID trade-offs between financial stability and economic renewal for, for, for low-income low countries? How, how do we balance those trade-offs? Uh, the second is, what are the specific financial sector policies and instruments uh, that, that are going to be important to address the fallout and help ensure stability uh, post-COVID? Uh, and the third is, how private finance can be leveraged and stepped up uh, uh, to assist. Um, joining us today is uh, Dr. Adeyemi Depolo, who is Special Advisor to the President of Nigeria on Economic Matters. He's based in the Office of the Vice President of Nigeria. I think many of you will be familiar with his work and interests around economic development, trade, industrial policy, uh, diplomacy, uh, including economic agreements and strategic management. Uh, we, we are hoping that Anzetse Were can join us, uh, and I'll introduce her uh, if, she, if she is able to dial in. Um, we've got Razia Khan, who is, uh, many of you will also know, Chief Economist of Africa and the Middle East uh, at Standard Chartered Bank. Razia has vast experience covering emerging and frontier markets, uh, works closely with central banks, finance ministries, and sovereign wealth funds. Um, uh, hopefully, Judith Tyson is, is, is going to manage to stay with us, and, and once again, if she 
if she does dial in and stay in, I will, I will, uh, uh, there we go, we've got a wave. Judith is a specialist uh, in finance for development, including financial market development, private investment, uh, and financial macroeconomics, uh, working at the ODI. Recent focuses of her research include private investments, co-financing between public and private investors, and banking and capital markets development. Uh, and then finally, we've got uh, Dr. Peter Mack, who's a senior research associate at the Global Governance Program at the University of Oxford. He also consults for the World Bank on Financial Inclusion. His research focuses on uh, global financial governance, the political economy of banking regulation in developing countries, China's financial system, which uh, is, is clearly uh, particularly interesting at this time, uh, and digital financial inclusion. Uh, we're also expecting, and I, and I believe the latest number is about 320 people have, uh, have, have pre-registered for this uh, from more than 40 countries. Uh, we're also expecting uh, a greater number to, to just be dialing in without having pre-registered. So I'm expecting a lot of questions and answers. I'm gonna, uh, there's going to be a lot of time for that. So please sort of keep your thinking caps on if you're in the audience and, uh, and you know, be ready with your, your uh, questions and, and contributions and uh, disagreements and arguments if that's the way you feel. But I'm going to first uh, start with uh, Adiyani. Can I hand over to you? Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, Jonathan. I hope you can hear me. Loud and clear, thank you. All right, thank you very much. The point I want to make this, more, uh, this afternoon is that the trajectory of COVID-19 in low-income African countries is complex, and this will compound the efforts to revive such economies. Like other countries in the world, of course, um, low-income countries have faced demand, supply, and financial shocks, and have used lockdowns, fiscal stimulus, and financial sector interventions to cope with the health and economic fallout of COVID-19. However, we are not yet near a post-COVID-19 situation in many low-income African countries. I, I, an interesting study by Michael Spence and some of his colleagues uh, using up-to-date mobility data from Google, amongst others, showed significant positive correlation between GDP growth and mobility. This innovative study showed many things, but one thing it did show was low-income countries are having great difficulty balancing virus control and economic recovery. Indeed, here in Nigeria, in spite of a fairly lengthy and economically costly lockdown, up to 16% of tests currently being carried out are COVID-19 positive. Given the size of our population, the density of economic interactions in the informal sector, and the compound rates of growth of infections, even a crude extrapolation of these figures is very frightening. Some have said maybe 300,000 by August. A longer period of COVID-19 infections and associated economic downturns will complicate counter-cyclical policy in low-income countries, mainly because they do not have the fiscal or monetary means to sustain such support and risk exhausting already limited buffers and further deterioration of asset quality. Moreover, the public health sector may soon be overwhelmed and putting strain on public finances. The prolonged period of slow growth 
will of course impact negatively on employment and poverty. The latest World Bank estimates uh, show that a further 100 million people will fall into extreme poverty this year. Of course, the bulk of them are most likely to come from Africa. Furthermore, the opening in the developed economies may bring only limited respite because their post-COVID-19 recoveries may be slow. In this context, and given previous structural vulnerabilities, we are likely to continue to see huge financing gaps, huge debt service obligations, foreign exchange shortages, and heightened credit risks in the banking sector uh, in many low-income countries. And they have very limited room for maneuver. In Nigeria, we don't expect to see real growth until the middle to third quarter of next year. So the challenge then is to find an appropriate set of policies post-COVID-19 that will allow a resumption of growth while, without jeopardizing financial stability. Some things I wish to highlight in that regard, of course, is that we will have to continue to pay close attention uh, to providing social intervention programs to tackle poverty. And we have to just have to find a way of mobilizing those resources uh, to be able to do so. Um, we also have to consider extending the relaxation of uh, prudential measures uh, uh, for as long as economic conditions post-COVID-19 remain difficult. Of course, in order to uh, complement public sector resources, private sector resources should be used to pay for infrastructure uh, and other such spending so that uh, public sector resources can then be used for direct support to businesses, providing social services and keeping human capital development going. Essentially, it will remain important at the domestic level to continue to engage with uh, international, the international community, especially creditors, to reduce debt service burdens. But I think it's important on the international front to ensure that low-income countries are not ignored and put into a collective economic quarantine just because they are too small to matter for the global economy. COVID-19 is a global bad insofar as it remains in any part of the world, it poses a risk to every part of the world. So from the international community, concerted efforts will be required to provide debt relief, either through forbearance, restructuring, or even outright forgiveness, grant further concessional lending through international financial institutions, provide more global liquidity, including by exploring innovative use of the special drawing rights, of course, I'm not sure that federal reserve swaps are available to low-income countries. And of course, it will be important to accelerate the reform of the international tax system to enable low-income countries to get more resources from economic activities taking place in their territories. Finally, and last but not least, uh, we must continue to enhance humanitarian interventions and give official development assistance for the very poorest countries. Thank you, Jonathan. Great, thank you. Um, gosh, you really are grappling with with uh, you know, sort of making 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 policy on the fly and having to you know sort of build the airplane while while you're in the air, I suppose. Um, bringing bringing back this connection between financial stability and and the current economic crisis, it, it seems to me quite strange that at least in in developed economies there seems to be some commentary out there that the is 
trying to make a comparisons with with the 08 global crisis and and sort of suggesting that that we're in a very different position today because because this crisis does not originate in the financial sector and uh, it certainly feels to me that in some parts of the world uh, a, a sort of economic shock of this nature soon becomes a financial services shock as well and I, and I wonder what your thoughts are uh, with with regard to to what's happening on on sort of loan losses and bad debts within Nigeria or, or broadly in the economies you're looking at? And can I'm, I put that to you? I'm yeah. afraid I didn't, I didn't most of what you said. Oh, gosh, I'm sorry. Uh, to what extent are you concerned that the current economic shock, no, are, we, are, are you losing me? The current economic shock becoming a financial sector shock. Okay. Um, did you you asked whether I'm concerned that the current economic shock will become a financial shock? Yes. Oh yes, of course. It 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 may well be. It may well be for the simple reasons that uh, there's a limit uh, to the amount of uh, credit and liquidity that uh, low-income countries can generate in their own uh, economies. And given the outflows of capital arising from the from the deteriorating economic situations and their inability to generate um, uh, their own foreign exchange uh, needs, I can very much say that indeed it may translate into a financial shock. Certainly, the longer the economic uh, conditions remain uh, dicey, the more likely you are to have a financial shock. And I'm going to follow up with one more question, if I may, which is, which is just, what are the policy responses that you are weighing right now uh, to buffer the financial sector from from that from that shock? What what are the policy risks to the financial sector from that? Uh, the, the policy responses. Or what are the policy responses yeah. to to the financial shock or to the economic shock or to both of them? To both. To both. Okay. I'm saying that, and, and that's the point I was making earlier, that is a fine line to tread. It's a fine line in the sense that while trying to mitigate uh, the economic uh, shock you've had to draw down on already uh, inadequate uh, resources. And so, of course, that's likely to translate into the financial shock. But what we are trying to do uh, at this end is to ensure through some forms of, um, first of all, regulatory forbearance, some form forms of enabling greater liquidity uh, into the financial system. Um, some forms at the same time of uh, lowering um, the cost uh, to people of accessing financial uh, services. But the greater point, of course, is that um, we have to keep an eye on the risk and there has to be close monitoring of the data to ensure that the risk metrics uh, uh, do not uh, tilt over and therefore further compound the situation. 
Great, thank you very much, uh, Adiemi. Uh, it, it, it's now my great pleasure to, to, to welcome uh, an old friend, Nzetse Oere, uh, who's, who's now been able to join us. Uh, she's an economist at FSD Kenya. She has vast experience working uh, in Africa on economic research, analysis and strategy with a focus on macroeconomics, manufacturing, the informal economy, private and financial sector development, uh, as well as working with African government's private sector development finance institutions uh, and non-profits and more. Um, and that's, I'm, I'm going to hand over to you to, to, to briefly outline what, what, what you think are the, the key priorities. Thank you. Thank you very much, uh, Jonathan. And, and, and thank you all for, uh, for making time for me to, to make some comments. Um, so I'm going to really, my, my angle is really going to be coming from a development economist point of view, specifically looking at the macroeconomic shocks that are being experienced because of COVID and how that's really trickling down into financial shocks and financial health for a lot of Africans. Um, so FSD Kenya, we went through a scenarios planning uh, sort of process over the past sort of month, looking at what are the trajectories for macroeconomic recovery for a country like Kenya for or for, or for Africa. And we were really looking at the middle, the middle segment of Africa, you know, sort of this missing middle that everybody tends to allude to, looking at the bulk of Africans or Kenyans who are not in absolute poverty. So they're not necessarily qualifies for cash transfers, but they're not also at the top tier, sort of in very secure formal jobs. They're in this middle space uh, that sort of straddles the formal and informal worlds. And some of the, the trajectories that we looked at was done by uh, a, a gentleman called Paul Gobbins and said, if there is an erosion of the capacity of that middle income group to earn a living because of COVID-19, there will be a material effect and an increase in, in poverty. And it is, if that middle 40% is hit the hardest, we could see the poverty rates in a country like Kenya going from 35% up to about 60%. Um, so with that in mind, we really did a, a deep dive. And, and one of the things that's becoming quite clear is that COVID is already disproportionately hitting uh, the bulk of Kenyans and the bulk of Africans that do earn an income in this middle world of semi-formal earnings, where the bulk of it comes from the, from the informal sector. As a result, we are seeing, you know, for example, in Kenya, Already about 75% have seen a knock on their income significantly. Uh, average weekly earnings have more than halved. Uh, the capacity to get hold of emergency funding has really deteriorated. Um, and people are even eating fewer meals because of COVID. And that is because the sort of diversified manner through which a lot of Africans were able to, to build in their, their income sources creatively have really been decimated uh, by, by COVID-19. Um, and the reason why, you know, from an FSD Kenya perspective, we feel that this, this middle portion is particularly important is first, is first of all because they really are the engine of, of economic growth in many African countries. We're talking about the micro, small and medium enterprise sector. That's the MSME sector, which is the bulk of private sector in most of African economies. Um, they're, they're, they have a large uh, uh, net of people who are dependent on them, either directly or indirectly. Um, they're generally more vulnerable because they're not well targeted either through the formal financial system or through government relief and targeting methods. And as I said, they're, they're already in distress. So it's really important that as we think through the way COVID is impacting the African economy, we really start whittling down to where should the bulk of, of the strategic focus be. In our, in our view, that views that we think that those are the cuspers and those are the people who are on the cusp of poverty um, and can very easily slip into that. I think 
one of the other big things that's sort of emerging as, as uh, you know, FSC has been doing this analysis is that there is a gendered impact COVID is having, and it's really quite pronounced uh, due, to, due to several reasons. First of all, if you look at the impact COVID is having, it is tending to hit women a lot harder. First of all, because of the types of sectors economic sectors that women tend to earn a living. So women tend to earn a living in high contact economic sectors, such as wholesale and retail trade, such as education, um, such as health, such as hospital and restaurant businesses, you know, event uh, management, food kiosks, catering, a lot of which have been a very uh, keen focus, um, you know, from a social control point of view as a COVID response for governments. As a result, their capacity to earn has been hit. Women are also very informal in the economic engagement. For example, in Kenya, about 60% of unlicensed establishments in Kenya are solely owned by women. Um, if you look at the way women finance themselves, informal finance is a very important way that they do finance themselves. Um, and this COVID period has seen a material decline in the ability of informal finance to be mobilized, partly because of the social distancing protocols, which means a lot of the savings groups that women use to finance their businesses aren't able to meet. Um, of course, women have a low asset base, so, so they you know where even if there were assets to sell, they just don't have them. Um, and then we are seeing an increase in domestic responsibilities because children at home and women do tend to be responsible financially for that space. And then sadly, we are also seeing an increase in violence linked to COVID in the domestic space against women. But let's look a bit more at the policy responses because people have been quite keen to understand the type of policy responses that are appropriate for many African economies and the extent to which they are and aren't effective. And again, when we're looking at women as a lens, which I think is a useful lens, um, and I'll tell you a bit more why, we are finding that the policy responses, for example, that are being taken have a limited reach uh, to women. Firstly, because if you look at the way the restrictions have been structured, um, the high contact sectors are the ones being hit the hardest. And in Kenya, we even have a curfew. Um, and although that was changed, you know, over the weekend, uh, the curfew had been structured in a way that um, after the post 5 p.m. sales, which are very important for a lot of micro, small and medium enterprises, you know, people buying things on their way home, that was effectively cut out when the curfew was instituted and women were really hit by that. If you're looking at the fiscal responses, and the fiscal response in Kenya has primarily been through um, tax incentives. Um, because the bulk of of women, and I would, I would should say the bulk of Kenyans, 86% of employed Kenyans earn their living in the informal sector, they don't really sit in the tax net anyway. So trying to use a fiscal response in the form of tax incentives doesn't really trickle or reach, reach them very well. Um, if you're looking again at the monetary policy response, we've seen um, a reduction in the Central Bank of Kenya on the, on the base rate for Kenyans. Again, um, the Kenya National Bureau of Statistics in 2016 indicated that only about 5.6% of micro, small, and medium enterprise get their financing from banks and microfinance institutions. So again, if you're trying to use that as a lever to try and get liquidity um, into private sector in many African countries, that will be limited in its effect. And then finally, the point about liquidity and, and, and targeting. Um, because the bulk of um, Africans do earn their living in the informal sector, um, you know, you, you're finding that it's very hard to target them. Uh, and if you're looking at a formal financial system that is not well exposed to the micro, small and medium enterprise sector, uh, it will be very difficult to use those channels to inject liquidity into where the bulk of private sector sits. And I'll just close with the point about, about digitization. I mean, I think digitization is sort of being seen almost like a silver bullet in, in, in allowing um, African economies to be resilient. But FSD, we watch this digitization very closely. And it's a really a very mixed picture because if you look at the role that digitization can play 
in buffering the economic shocks or being used as a tool for financial deployment. Um, first of all, you have to bear in mind that Africans have to have the right tools, that's the right phones and, and electronics, as well as the financial bandwidth to engage in, in the digital economy. So they need to be able to make the transactions and, in, and engage in the, in the digital platforms. And so if we do push everything to digital, there is a real risk that you do exclude uh, many Africans um, along the digital divide and a, a sort of financial discrimination could start creeping up because of the sort of tariffs that are required to engage effectively in the digital economy. Um, so I'll just end there for now. Thank you. Gosh, th th thank you. That was absolutely fascinating, uh, in particular, uh, the lens you used in terms of gender, that I think was uh, absolutely fascinating, as well as your your comments. And then perhaps Peter can can uh, take these up when when he comes in somewhat later. But uh, on on you know digitization not being a silver bullet. Um, but but I would just like to uh, follow up and, and push you slightly on that one point, which is. Uh, in previous downturns, we've seen that that uh, mobile money and the like have, you know, sort of provided some some sort of shock absorption capacity uh, in in the economy. And I, I wonder whether we're seeing any of that now, or, or whether sort of the downturn is so correlated across everything that that those normal uh, shock absorbers are just not not able to to kick in. Well, I mean, I think the answer is, is yes and no. I mean, it, it, what we're seeing is that your, the capacity to use digital tools, if you're speaking about digitization, will really depend on the firms or household um, digital capabilities and financial bandwidth to engage with that. Um, just as a preface, FSD Kenya, we, you know, we release something called FinAccess every year. And we found that one of the main reasons uh, people don't use mobile money is because it's too expensive. And although that's sort of trying to be addressed, please do bear in mind that 22% of rural adults in Kenya don't own mobile phones. And this is a country that's been well ahead of the curve when you're talking about digital finance. Um, and when you're looking at mobile money specifically, if you look at local market farmers, where a lot of you know the, the smallholder farmers sit, only about 30%, um, uh, well, about 30% don't even have a mobile money account. So yes, it's true that you know, digital finance, the digital economy has been an, a way to more to buffer individuals. But what we're seeing is that as Corona, you know, pushes people towards a digital space, there is an attrition rate that's happening because people are just not having the financial bandwidth um, to continue engaging in the digital economy the way that they used to. Um, and when you're looking at income shocks, uh, what we're seeing is a fall in aggregate demand. Um, and so when we're looking at policy responses, things around credit lines, you know, to micro, small and medium enterprise, we do need to look at the aggregate demand issue um, and try and get that up uh, so that people now have the income sources to then feed into any digital economy um, play that they want to make. Great, thank you. Again, fascinating, and, and, and I'm sure we will continue with some of these. In particular, I'd love to later in the conversation hear your your policy responses, uh, in particular, in, in, in dealing with this uh, the gender impacts uh, uh, of COVID and, and the policy response. But in, in the meantime, I'm going to bring in Razia, who uh, I, I suppose. Uh, you know, can speak from, from, from the viewpoint of a global financial institution. Razia. Thank you, Jonathan. And just reflecting back on your 
earlier question around the longer term trade-off. We know that a lot of the policy response that we're seeing within the sub-Saharan African region is very much down to the fact that many African economies are coming into the COVID crisis relatively constrained. For the oil producing economies, they hadn't even properly recovered from the late 2014 collapse in oil prices, what that had done to external and fiscal buffers. And almost across the board in a number of other countries looking at rising public debt to GDP ratios, there was a need to put in place some kind of long-term fiscal consolidation. And of course, the question now is how much is the COVID crisis going to do lasting damage to all of that? One encouraging aspect of of the policy response that we have seen across sub-Saharan Africa very much has to do with either monetary policy, the interest rate easing that has been possible, inflation in the very near term is not the key problem. The issue is one of the demand shock when a lot of activity, especially where economies have really depended so much on the kind of activity that's generated by face-to-face -face interaction. The social distancing for economies with a large degree of of informality causes significant problems. And I think we're only trying now to assess just how significant the shock is going to be to African economies. On the other hand, what we've seen from central banks across the region is a very proactive response, not just the monetary easing, but the regulatory relief, the regulatory forbearance put in place to try to encourage banks to continue to lend, to try to encourage the credit growth as a mitigant to the rapidly deteriorating macroeconomic situation. Now, of course, this isn't without its element of debate. The question is, when you put in place a great deal of regulatory forbearance, it's one thing to allow for some capital relief for banks. We've seen countries like Kenya reducing the cash reserve ratio, but in a very targeted way. So new loan growth can be directed at those sectors that are most affected by the COVID crisis. It isn't just a liquidity release for the sake of having a broad-based liquidity release, but it's very much aimed at consolidating that effort to try to prevent a worsening slowdown as a result of the COVID crisis. One issue that has come up in other countries is just the degree of regulatory forbearance, where payment holidays are being put in place and banks are being enabled to make it easier for their for borrowers from those institutions to repay those loans, that is generally a good thing. But others have raised the issue that if there's a great deal of regulatory forbearance put in place, if, for example, central banks are requiring that loans that become non-performing don't necessarily count as non-performing over the period of the COVID crisis, or perhaps even prior to that, the question is, is there a way of adequately measuring, adequately monitoring the extent of asset quality deterioration. Some would say that one of the best ways of dealing with this crisis is, yes, to put in place temporary regulatory forbearance. There is a lot to be said for policies that can be reversed once the different economies are on a growth trajectory once again. And just as there is a need for African economies to come out of this, still with the building blocks of 
potential future fiscal consolidation still in place, that is, efforts to build a revenue base somehow need to continue once the immediate shock has passed, and anything that is done to strengthen revenue mobilization in the long term will ultimately be more favorable for long-term growth, long-term revenue mobilization, longer-term fiscal consolidation, and providing the confidence that's needed that growth can be restored and governments will be in a relatively good position to be able to oversee that. So there is a question that is very much focused on the banking sector, and that is to the extent that regulatory forbearance is put in place, let's not forget that the fiscal room for any significant financial sector fallout to be dealt with for any resolution that might need to be put in place is also limited. So policymakers are having to play a very important balancing role between the immediate needs of the crisis, but also thinking about how to restore confidence, how to build a well-capitalized banking system that is better able to to support growth in the future. A final point, and Anzetsa touched on this very well, is the challenges as a result of the economic informality that does persist in Africa. To the extent that regulatory forbearance has been put in place, existing borrowers from established financial institutions see some of that relief. That is a good way of being able to provide the stimulus that's needed. But for so much of sub-Saharan Africa's economy that operates in a much more informal manner, in the informal sector, finding the right policy choices to be able to reach that informal economy that might have been even more significantly impacted is going to be an issue. Thank you, Razia. Um, We've been talking a lot about sort of domestic financial institutions and domestic financial sectors, but I, I am also mindful that the you know, international banks play quite a big role. And I'm, I'm not going to put you on the spot by, by asking you sort of where Stan Chart stands on this, but I am going to ask you for a slightly broader perspective. And, and, and that is that, um, you know, I, I've had conversations with senior bankers at two large, large inst international institutions recently who are currently seeing some really fantastic opportunities in, in, in debt in Africa. Uh, and both of them said to me that they would not sort of get a deal past their, past their risk committees or board at the moment, even, you know, even, even though the opportunity is there and is probably not as risky as, as, as the board might say. And I, I wonder if you've got an observation on, on whether international banks are sort of right now acting in a dangerously pro-cyclical way by de-risking and whether there is more that they could be doing generally or, or, or whether in fact uh, they're able to step in right now and, and, and are playing a, a helpful role when domestic institutions are, are, are under pressure. So a very significant part of this, of course, is that the policy response that we're seeing isn't necessarily limited to what we're seeing in African economies. Let's not forget, for example, just looking broadly at the availability of financing for developing countries, that the Fed has pumped more than $2 trillion of liquidity into the global financial system since the beginning of February. And what we're seeing right now is a great deal of optimism in markets, some would say perhaps premature, perhaps somewhat misplaced, that this is going to be part of the solution and therefore better growth prospects are being priced in. And the question is, when do we see a restoration 
of those flows to emerging markets and to frontier markets in particular. In terms of lending, the big concern is that as we look to the COVID trajectory, and if we see a rise in risk aversion, and knowing that the policy space in many sub-Saharan African economies is going to be very limited in terms of what can and be done to provide that counter-cyclical stimulus, are we going to see that risk aversion and perhaps the hesitance to take on riskier lending projects getting in the way of what should be a much easier situation with the amount of liquidity that has been pumped into the global economy? So the question is, for a lot of the lending decisions, are we essentially going to be seeing risk aversion offsetting the impact of the policy stimulus that we've seen? That's a key question. Another issue on a much more local level and countries like Nigeria spring to mind where there has been an effort by the Central Bank of Nigeria to encourage banks to dramatically ramp up their lending to the private sector even ahead of this COVID crisis is how much can be done in a very short space of time. If banks are under pressure to suddenly scale up lending very dramatically, is there a preference for more short-term loans? Is it the case that the maturity transformation isn't necessarily happening? Are they really directing the effort at the sectors that are deemed to be safest? Are we really getting the meaningful transformation that we need to see and a deepening of financial intermediation essentially? So I think there are two parts to that question. The first is, what is the outlook for sub-Saharan African economies and what is really needed outside of the policy response on a global level that we've already seen? It's something that restores faith in the ability of different economies to generate growth again, which will obviously lead to rising risk appetite and hopefully greater levels of lending into the different economies, but also on a much more local level, on a domestic level, the incentive to keep on lending in a stable way do need to be looked at as well. Thank you, Razia. That, that, that was really interesting. Um, I'd, I'd like us to now, oh, uh, and I, I think she is no longer with us. I was, I was about, to say, I'm about to bring in Judith, but I think we've, we've lost her connection again. So uh, uh, we, we will see if, if, if Judith is able to come back in. Otherwise, uh, uh, in the meantime, I'm just going to go straight then to Peter. Thank you very much, Jonathan, and thank you for having me uh, in this uh, very interesting uh, webinar today. Um, a lot of very important things have been said already. Um, I just wanted to add a few things. Um, first, on the macroeconomic context, um, four important growth engines uh, for African economies are uh, exports, um, foreign investment, um, remittances, and tourism. And uh, as you can see, all of these four uh, growth engines are severely threatened by COVID-19, by the uh, fallout, the economic fallout from uh, the global COVID crisis. And uh, um, as Adeyemi said, the policymakers in, in African economies are only now starting to see what is possible, what can be done to face such a severe uh, shock uh, from uh, the external sector. Um, Exports have, have tanked uh, significantly. The IIF uh, published a, um, a graph um, about two months ago showing the reverse flows away 
from uh, developing countries uh, and this reverse flow is uh, much more deep and much more significant than it was in the 2008 crisis. So that is a serious source of concern. Uh, remittances have also um, been decreased. The, the current uh, estimate of the um, by the World Bank is that remittances will be down about 20% uh, and um, export and um, tourism where we're only starting to see uh, how much of a dip that uh, important economic sector will take. And knowing these consequences to the real economy has some implications for financial sector policies. Um, if, um, and I, I agree with all the, the speakers before, regulatory forbearance at this point, at the depth of the crisis is important because no one can uh, clearly identify uh, where uh, distinguish between solvency and liquidity issues that uh, uh, the private sector has at this point. Uh, and therefore, uh, payment holidays uh, and um, uh, changes in classification of non-performing loans will be an important short-term measure that is already being taken in many countries. Um, but there is a, a definite risk that uh, an extension of that policy could lead to over-indebtedness. Many African countries have entered uh, this crisis with uh, large debt exposures. Um, uh, in addition, in uh, some African economies, we already have seen um, retail credit uh, crises. And uh, FSD Kenya uh, and, your, and, and her team have done uh, amazing work identifying problems of uh, over-indebtedness among retail customers due to digital credit. So there's uh, a definite word of caution necessary to look at um, over-indebtedness and the further extension of credit and the sustainability issues that brings. Um, on the, so given this situation, um, what are the, the possible policy responses? And I think that is a, that is a, is a very tough question that, that now governments are grappling with. Um, I'm a resident uh, in the US, um, and um, you know, as a as a country that has a few trillion dollars to spare, uh, you know, we got a check uh, by our president, uh, who made very uh, sure that his name is on the check and that he sent a letter making sure that we're all grateful um, for his generosity. Um, governments in most countries around the world do not have the fiscal space for a massive fiscal expansion and some equivalent of universal basic income. Um, and so given that smaller um, space, what, what are possible uh, policy reactions? Um, one thing we have seen in recent months is that uh, central banks have reduced um, fees for uh, mobile money. Um, uh, African economies have taken the lead over the last decade in mobile money. Uh, have in many uh, in many countries um, mobile money has overtaken banks as the first and primary access of people to uh, the financial system and uh, it is also important to to note that uh, in many african economies uh, commercial banks have never done much for uh, the bottom of the pyramid um, small and medium companies and retail uh, investors have not been able to uh, access credit from most commercial banks in many countries. Um, and uh, the asset, the balance sheet of, of a lot of commercial banks uh, is heavily skewed towards big corporates and uh, sovereigns. 
And so in order to help uh, uh, people that are uh, under threat of falling into poverty or of deepening in poverty, maybe commercial banks are not the key sector uh, to look at. Uh, and this is when peer-to-peer um, -peer informal finance uh, in its digital form also comes into play. And uh, I, I completely agree with everything that Annette said um, on the shortfalls and on the dangers that uh, a ramping up or a reliance, an exclusive reliance on digital financial inclusion would open up um, digital gaps and lead to a digital exclusion of people that are probably most vulnerable in the first place. Uh, but it is also interesting and heartening to see that some central bank responses have already led to a surge uh, in uh, digital finance and in the adoption of digital finance. The Rwandan, uh, the uh, Central Bank of Rwanda, for example, mandated uh, in April uh, that um, all um, mobile money accounts should charge uh, zero charges on P2P person-to-person -person transfers, uh, or zero charges on transfers between bank accounts and mobile wallets, zero merchants fees, and an increase in the daily uh, limit of individual transfers. And what that brought from the decision that was, oh, it was actually made in March, from the decision made in March to um, uh, within one month was a 485% increase in the weekly value of P2P transfers. So we see that uh, in the face of a crisis, there is a take up uh, of digital finance and digital financial um, uh, channels that help risk uh, sharing among people. Now, usually uh, P2P and, and domestic uh, transfers are a great risk sharing mechanism when a crisis hits in one part of the country and not in another part of the country. COVID makes that harder because the crisis is so, so general. But um, there is hope that uh, potentially the an easing, a regulatory easing of digital financial inclusion uh, and of P2P finance might be uh, helping people in need to uh, activate the risk sharing networks of family or friends uh, that they can only access through digital finance. Great, thank you very much, Peter. Um, you know, as a journalist, it's, it's, it's my dream to have you know, a group of uh, super smart people and I, and I can get to ask them all the questions I'd like to, but uh, I'm going to have to be democratic here and, uh, and allow uh, the rest of you to have your turn too. So there is a, there is a chat box uh, on the side and apparently uh, you, you, know, you can put your questions and comments in there. Uh, those will then be uh, sort of sent through to me uh, when we get to the Q&A and I can then read them out for you. So please do start putting through your questions and comments. Uh, in, in the meantime, while you're doing that, I'm just gonna, I'm gonna take the opportunity to, to ask Peter one, one question, which is, well, one and a half, I guess, uh, which is that you, you talk about the you know, large increases in Rwanda, we've seen similar in, in some other countries. Um, and, and part of that, I guess, is, is down to uh, regulators dealing with the point in ZSMA, which is the, the very high cost of, of mobile money transfers to, to users. Um, as I understand it, we're already seeing a sort of phasing out and, and, and pricing going back to normal. And I, and I wonder, just on that narrow point, whether you, you would then expect us to be sort of back where we started on, on, on the mobile side. I guess the second question, and, and we can discuss this further later as well, but uh, if we're honest, financial intermediation hasn't really worked terribly well in, in many African markets, even in normal times. Um, 
Some of that is to do with crowding out by governments, etc. Uh, to what extent, are, you know, are you concerned that that as we see our way through this crisis, we simply we don't end up back where we started, but in fact we end up in a far worse place, uh, Peter? Um, the the concern that I have, uh, and that that uh, the two concerns that I have, one of them definitely echoes everything that Anetza said: the creating the creation of a digital divide. Uh, or the the deepening of a digital divide that uh, people parts of the population that are most vulnerable don't have uh, cell phone coverage, don't have an agent anywhere close, and don't have access to a cell phone, um, and that these people who probably most need uh, government support or support from family and friends are not able uh, to to get that help. Uh, the second concern that I have and where. Uh, countries could end up worse than before is over indebtedness uh, both on the SME sector and both on the retail sector because the idea of credit is uh, that it will help your business um, uh, survive a certain uh, moment of hardship but then be able to pick up and grow based on increased aggregate demand. I am not sure that that aggregate demand is going to bounce back as soon uh, as fast as the credit will come due. So these are the two concerns that I have uh, for the near future. Great, thank you, Peter. Uh, uh, once again, a reminder to, to those who uh, have, have dialed in, please put your questions through. Uh, in the meantime, my great pleasure to, to hand over to Judith Tyson, who uh, hopefully is now able to. Yeah. Brilliant. Okay, thanks very much, Jonathan. Um, I think um, I just want to couple up, uh, couple up, uh, pick up on a little bit on the remarks um, about uh, forbearance, particularly capital forbearance, and the, the sort of flooding of the the uh, financial system with liquidity. Um, as you saw, there's quite a lot of support for that as a sort of short term measure, and then a, a little bit of discussion about uh, the risks of that. But I think that there's, you know, it's it's worth emphasising um, that these sort of short term measures can go terribly wrong. And I'm thinking particularly of uh, examples like. Uh, Japan, for example, where um, the propping up of the banking system in uh, this form uh, with the assumption that things will go back to normal soon. And I'm, I'm hearing even in discussion, but we're hearing it much more broadly about what, what's going to, you know, the assumption is that we we uh, wait a little bit and then everything's going to go back to uh, normal as it was before, uh, was uh, was deeply mistaken. And in fact, what we saw is a radical restructuring of their economy. And uh, when the tide went out, we then saw zombie banks and firms that were left behind. And the, you know, the long-term impact of that was it um, uh, suppressed uh, recovery for decades. And it's very careful that we don't go down that route uh, and I would say that there is some arguments that we should look at other policy options much more quickly so for example uh, managed mergers weak institutions or uh, bad um, you know, uh, uh, vehicle, government funded vehicles for acquisition of bad debts which have been uh, quite successful elsewhere in the region uh, most notably in places like Kenya and Nigeria um, and I think that's particularly the case too because the um, the other issue that we might like to consider is that we've actually got quite a lot of uh, differences in in the vulnerability of institutions. So on the one hand, we have some institutions um, that have balance sheet structures such as hard currency lending or wholesale rather than deposit funding or uh, institutions with significant concentrations at risk. So things like the oil industry or uh, in the low income sector. Uh, but conversely, we also have seen some institutions uh, um, emerge in Africa in the last decade, which are pretty robust 
so I'm thinking here of some of the big regional banks, for example, of well-diversified businesses. They've uh, you know built their deposit base. Um, you know they have good risk management, and those it should it may be that we want to have uh, policies which uh, emphasise supporting the um, continued viability of those institutions, but maybe at the cost of um, a managed uh, a failure of other institutions. And you know that may may be something you need to think of the balancing off. Um, I thought too, um, it's just worth mentioning, uh, you mentioned about the sovereign, uh, sovereign debt business. I mean, I think the uh, outlook for that is extremely poor. Uh, we've seen a huge surge in um, yields in the market and um, we've seen a you know, significant cancellation uh, of uh, planned issuances for this year. And although um, you know, there's some forbearance around that, I think there's analysis by the IMF who pointed out that the actual refinancing risk is, is still three, you know, uh, three, four years out, which is a positive thing. But we also need um, uh, African governments to think long term about weaning themselves off uh, sovereign debt um, as a source of uh, fiscal expansion and particularly uh, looking for the development of local currency uh, instruments and financing, which really means uh, a much greater focus on uh, domestic financial deepening. And of course, that's been a policy focus for some time, but we need to double down on that. Um, uh, Jonathan, maybe I'll finish there so we have some time for some questions. Brilliant, thank you, Judith. And, and, and I think particularly uh, interesting insights in terms of, of the argument around uh, Capital which plan. institutions we, we try to support uh, uh, is, is, is clearly going to be a, a, a contentious issue and, and, and obviously the call uh, again for, for, for financial deepening and, and domestic resource mobilization. Um, before we go straight into the into the actual Q&A as such, um, there is, uh, at least I hope it will pop up on your boxes, there's a poll uh, where we'd like to hear your opinions, and that is uh, whether the audience, whether you think that uh, there will be a financial crisis on top of the COVID-induced uh, COVID economic crisis. Uh, and Apparently that pops up under your chat box. I, I don't see it on mine, but if it does, please do do vote and uh, hopefully we'll get your results uh, from there. Uh, in the meantime, uh, I, I'm gonna move to questions from, from the audience. Uh, and I have a question uh, from uh, Martin Fowler, uh, which is, uh, before I read that out, uh, just a, 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 a request is, could you also give an institution, uh, uh, an affiliation when, when, when you put questions through, please. Um, and I can I can then read those out. Martin Fowler asks, if mobile phone ownership and mobile money accounts uh, are as patchy and non-universal uh, uh, in Kenya and, and others, including Uganda, uh, how all-inclusive uh, are, are of the poorer digital payments, or can they be? Uh, we're hearing much about their use and reintroduction in recent weeks uh, as a form of social protection, but are they hitting the target? Uh, that we thought they were. And I, I think that perhaps I'm going to direct this to Nzetse first. Thank you. Um, I mean, precisely, that's the precise conundrum that we're in right now, is that, first of all, on the, on the, on the positive side of, 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 of mobile money, is that it is quite ubiquitous. And when you're looking at the way it's been able to drive financial inclusion, that's been a key story in Kenya, having very good figures around that. I think what the usefulness of this crisis is that it is beginning to articulate the nuances required to make sure that the use of digital channels is, is appropriate. Um, so I do think that we do need to start looking at the cost issue because if you don't look at the cost issue, um, you're gonna really build in financial discrimination in terms of the, the ability of individuals to use that. I think the second thing is getting quite creative around the way people use or get access to the financial tools required 
to um, to access um, digital finance, for example. So I think, you know, I think to the point that Peter made, looking at agency networks is really quite important. We've also been looking at the issue of interoper interoperability in FSD Kenya, making it easy for people to use whatever type of money as and when they want. But I think the bigger issue for me is that we really need to start cracking the informal finance puzzle. Uh, because if you look at the way the bulk of private sector in Africa funds itself, certainly in Kenya, over 80% is from social networks um, and friends and family. And I'm sure a lot of that does come through your mobile money, mobile money remittances. But the reason why it's been so difficult to use that as a channel is because there's no supervisory oversight. So I think this is really the time to start looking at the way private sectors organized the wheels of high finances itself, and then looking at the role that digital finance plays in that as a conduit for true liquidity target targeting. Because I do think that the financial intermediation of the formal financial system is really quite stimid right now. Thanks, Nzetse. Peter, uh, this, is, this is an area that you've also thought about quite a lot. Uh, is there anything you'd like to add? Uh, yeah, just my two cents on this. Um, I've been looking at um, different uh, countries and COVID responses, G2P, government to people payments in as a COVID response. And uh, India is actually an interesting case uh, where the government has used a rather heavy-handed uh, interventionist um, approach over the last seven, eight years uh, to provide bank accounts, Jandan uh, bank accounts are called, uh, to 380 million people. Um, and the Indian government is now using these accounts to channel uh, 500 rupees per month um, as COVID uh, response uh, transfers. Uh, so this is an unconditional cash transfer and it reaches a large amount of the population. 500 rupees are $6. Um, so this is within, this is not, you know, a massive fiscal expansion, but it is using an infrastructure that the government has created over the years to reach a large amount of people that are in need uh, because they're suffering most from the economic fallout of, of the COVID crisis. Um, and I think uh, financial inclusion, digital financial inclusion in African countries varies a lot. In, in Kenya, it is at 82% of the adult population. It is much lower uh, in other countries. So the maybe the current COVID crisis also helps um, that uh, to, to kind of re-energize governments to create a digital financial infrastructure that will allow governments uh, targeted support uh, to people that are in the informal sector uh, and to people that are more neat and that wouldn't be reached through the commercial banking system. Thank you, Peter. Uh, our next question comes from uh, Bernard Mahati uh, and I, I'm going to direct this to Judith and that is uh, a question is, what is the future of trade finance for banks in Africa beyond COVID-19? Uh, do you see uh, an increase or a reduction in lending in the sector? Um, I think it's an interesting question because, of course, uh, first of all, um, we need to think about the actual situation with trade. Uh, and we're seeing quite significant disruption of trade right across the region at, at lots of different levels. So uh, international trade, uh, for example, um, uh, you know, in Kenyan horticulture, we have seen 
um, disruption, you know, for uh, you know air goods. Uh, we have seen regional disruption. There's talk about uh, queues of 70 kilometers on the Tanzania-Kenyan border, for example, with uh, regional imports. And we've seen disruption uh, with lockdown in terms of national trade. So there's a fundamental issue about the trade itself. But I think in terms of financing, of course, there's two aspects of that. One, it has long been a gap in the financing landscape. Um, and we've seen a lot of policy initiatives, uh, including, you know, bodies like the African Development Bank or, or the Africa Export Import Bank, who have tried to fill that gap. And of course, when we see this kind of risk to uh, trade um, from the shock, that that um, credit is almost certain to shrink back further. So it is an important area for policymakers to step into. Um, and I'd emphasize two things. One, of course, is just basic um, trade financing uh, outright, but also we need to see a development of the factoring business. Uh, again, we have seen policy in initiatives around uh, development of uh, you know, value chain financing and factoring, but we need to see that doubled down. Thanks, Judith. Um, Razia, you can, you can nod or shake your head. Would you, would you like to add anything to that? I think Judith has answered it very comprehensively. The only point I would add is that obviously what happened with trade finance in the immediate aftermath of the global financial crisis where we did see a much more constrained situation. This time around, what we're seeing instead is the real economy effect. It's because of the COVID crisis and the COVID containment measures and what that has meant in terms of initially the supply chain disruption, China's trade with the rest of the world, and now the fact that we see entire economies closing down the impact on air travel. Do we expect this to be long lasting? Not necessarily. The hope is that at least in terms of the financing of trade, we do not see significant dislocations. It may well be a case of lessons learned from the last time, from the prior crisis. It does seem to be different this time around. Thank you, Razia. I think, I think a lot of us get nervous when we hear, when we hear bankers saying those words. Um, uh, our next question comes through from uh, Louise Shackson at the ODI, uh, and, I, and I'm going to direct this to uh, uh, Anzetsa and Adiemi. Um, and and I, I suppose the question is, to what extent are we seeing people uh, de-digitizing? And, and, and I suppose this comes primarily to Anzetsa's point earlier of uh, you know, a, a large group of people in the middle uh, who are on the cusp of, of, of poverty, who may be forced into perhaps selling their phones uh or, or, or i suppose not having not having money for connectivity and and and, and really falling out of that digital economy um are, are we seeing any of that i don't i don't know anyone who's tracking it uh but i think if we're talking about asset sales i think that's why it's really important to look at the differentiated effect the way aggregate demand is falling right people there's a there's a holistic shock but there's a material effect in your ability to tell to sell assets when that's happening so even if individuals did have mobile phones or electronics to sell, the demand for that type of um, asset in the context of severe income strain is really quite is really quite compromised. And so I think when you're looking at um, uh, the selling of assets, bear in mind that already in Kenya, countries like Kenya, you know, it's, uh, Kenya is a good one because we're often used as a digital child of Africa. Cash is still king. You know, and, and even if people do use mobile money, you know, there is a remittances role there, but there is a very large cash economy, particularly for day-to-day -day purchases. And what we find is that the use of formal financial uh, uh, tools, such as uh, mobile money or, or even banks, it tends to be more of a saving. It tends to bend towards saving a bit more than certainly um, entrepreneurial um, um, activity. 
And within that, there are segments that behave differently. So I think it's very important that people do not take a one-size-fits-all approach when it comes to digital responses. And I think that sort of links to, to the other point around, okay, then what role can digitalization play? And I think that's when you start looking at sectoral recovery. And you look at the sectors at, that are most exposed to, to digital uh, interfaces and then the extent to which they can be used as conduits. And we started doing this in, in FSD, looking at you know, a quadrant that looks at the impact of COVID and then timelines of recovery. And through doing that, you create a sense of what are the prospects of recovery you know, from purely financial point of view. And then you can superimpose that while well, then given that, how exposed are those sectors to, to digitization? And there are very creative ways you can start using, um, if you use digitization as a lens, uh, to try at looking at the extent to which that can be used. But I think the, the basic response is that we will need different financial tools for this crisis because it is so varied in the way it's hitting segments of the economy, incomes and sectors. And so you can't really do a one size fits all at all at this stage. Thanks, Anzetta. I'm, I'm going to, to throw another question to you and, and, and I'm then going to ask Peter to to reflect on, on, on the earlier one as well as the one that's about to follow. Uh, and, and this next question uh, comes from uh, Daria uh, Dubovitskaya uh, at IPE Triple Line. And, and her question is essentially that, you know, as you've said, uh, mobile money is not a, a silver bullet or panacea, but, but, but we accept that it is important. Is there a, a greater role that um, should be played by donors, et cetera, in, in, in trying to support mobile money uh, you know, and financial inclusion right now. So, uh, Anzetse, can I yeah. give that back to you? Yeah, sure. And I mean, I'm, I'm really glad that question is being asked because I think often what we see sometimes in the digital space is solutions looking for problems. And I think what COVID has articulated quite well is that people don't really understand the way Africans use mobile money or why they use mobile money or why they use digital finance. Often is that you know, become digital is a, is a solution. And then it's like, get Africans, let's teach them how to, you know, use a specific product or this, use this specific policy intervention. And it's really quite dangerous. And I think that's why you've seen not much success in the scaling up of many sort of digital products, because there's been, there's been this productization of digital as a solution. And I think what COVID is really presenting as an opportunity is can we understand the type of utility derived from digital finance and the digital economy and then create products that meet that utility. And of course, mobile money is a good example because it did meet a need that existed. So I think when donors are thinking about the role of digital, go back uh, to the African economies and people who study uh, the way Africans spend money. You know, the fact that 90% of retail trade in Africa tends to happen in informal markets. How do people use digital channels in those contexts? Because then you'll really create products that have a utility function rather than just being a product because it's a good idea um, that, that looks you know, attractive. Uh, so I think it's really important that that is at the heart of any sort of responses around digitization. Yeah, I think, I think that's really helpful, sort of, you know, sort of you know, give people what they need, not, not what we find easy to give them. Peter, what, what are your thoughts on, on, on both of these issues? Uh, Annette's comment really made me smile. It is, it is true. Mobile money is, is uh, a solution looking for problems, and well, COVID is is a problem. Uh, what we've seen, and you know, uh, moving to the question of of what uh, foreign donors can do, um, what we've seen in in recent years is that uh, the reason why some countries do, have not moved the needle much in terms of financial inclusion is not a lack of money. It's not a lack of uh, interest. 
it is a, a lack of regulatory space to do so. Uh, so uh, governments and central banks have decided not to put regulatory enablers in place that let mobile money flourish. And often uh, that has to do with the relationship between banks and non-banks. Um, uh, mobile um, uh, network operators have been trying to move into the mobile money market in, in uh, all African economies, but sometimes have been bogged down by obligations to partner with banks who then didn't have much interest in expanding an Asian network. There's been very uh, complicated uh, conflicts of interest that have happened. So uh, one way of moving forward in extending financial inclusion and allowing this to happen would be to remove regulatory barriers to private sector uh, players. Uh, in other countries, um, in, in, in some economies, in South Africa, for example, you, you see that the government has uh, made a big effort uh, through the uh, Social Security Administration. So I think the financial inclusion rates are about 90%. Almost everyone has an account. Uh, but this goes back to Annette's comment. People uh, take their money out of uh, their account at uh, the beginning of the month and then use cash for the rest of the day. So they treat their bank account like a mailbox and it should be celebrated like a mailbox. You know, it's not an amazing, you know, piece of innovation, but in terms of COVID, a mailbox for everyone who is in need of it would be a great thing to do. And actually here is, that is one use case uh, where the evidence is pretty clear that governments are able to channel uh, uh, financial resources to the ones that are most in need at a way in a way that is way more efficient uh, than before because it cuts out middlemen, it cuts out corruption. Governments can uh, save uh, huge amounts in administrative costs by using uh, mobile money to channel uh, government payment to individuals. So that is something that I think deserves more attention. Great, thank you very much. Uh, we, we've got a question from uh, Suete Nkoro at Pearl in Nigeria. And I'm, I'm going to give this to you, Razi, and, I, and I, I, the, the question in essence is to say, what more should banks be, you know, we've been talking about the policy response and the regulatory response. I guess this is, this is a bit about what more should we be expecting banks to be doing uh, at this time? It's clear that banks will react to the policy incentives that are put in place for them. So there has been, as mentioned initially, a very good, very proactive response on the part of African policymakers, looking at regulatory forbearance where appropriate, looking at ways of continuing to channel credit to the real sectors, to the real economy. What needs to happen to ensure that there is sufficient confidence that banks are healthy enough to keep on lending, to keep on sustaining economic growth, even on the other side of this crisis. And that's where we're likely to see a lot more debate. It's very easy to decide early on in the crisis, this is what needs to be in place. This is how we release the liquidity. This is how we encourage financial institutions to keep on lending. But what is unknown here is how long the COVID crisis is likely to be with us, how much of an impact we see in terms of the destruction of spare capacity across different economies, how long can different businesses weather the storm until there is anything like a normalization in activity. So at this stage of the COVID crisis response, if you like, there needs to be a lot more discussion on what needs to be done ultimately to strengthen banks. There's been a lot of talk already about um, whether banks should be paying out dividends, whether they should be shoring up their 
capital base with a clear consensus almost the world over that it's about shoring up the capital base for now and strengthening financial institutions. But there does need to be a lot of debate around what is going to lead the recovery trajectory from this crisis and how banks can be incentivized to continue to play a great role in driving that recovery. In fact, Claudia, I'm just going to follow up with a very, very briefly just on that, which is we've seen the big debate uh, in developed economies, and you know, where regulators insisting on these, these sort of suspension of dividends and, and, and some pushback from shareholders. How live is that debate uh, within African economies, and, and, and to what extent are debt investors uh, or external debt investors perhaps also sort of tilting the balance and, and, and putting pressure on, on African banks to to shore up capital. Well, the immediate motivation for a lot of the measures that we have seen in the region in the recent past are very difficult to separate out entirely from the balance of payments shocks that different economies have been subject to. So one reaction from the regulators has been, this is a time when banks across the board need to be shoring up capital. And the arguments for that are very well understood. But we should not forget that this also played an important role in limiting outflows from different economies at a time when we had seen a vast withdrawal of a lot of portfolio investment. Now, the key question is, how does this evolve going forward? We know that we have seen almost unprecedented levels of QE being announced in developed markets. We know that it's just a matter of time before that starts to seek out better opportunities, higher yielding investment, and many African countries do stand to benefit as a result of that, will we consequently see a relaxation of some of the immediate COVID-related crisis responses that we've already seen put in place as the situation normalize? Or is it the case that we can't yet be looking at a normalization, that policy is still going to be very much more reactive and everyone's going to be focusing on what do you need to do to stabilize the situation? What markets seem to be telling us for the moment, especially with relative calm being restored to foreign exchange markets, is that perhaps we are over the worst. Great, thank you. At the end, yeah, uh, you've managed to, to come back in. Um, of your connection troubles. I'd, I'd just like to put this last question back to you, which is uh, we, we've seen regulators in, in some economies uh, sort of putting pressure on banks to, to build capital buffers, to withhold dividends, etc. Can you can you share any insights as to as to what you're seeing in Nigeria and what you think ought to be happening further? Hi, Jonathan. Uh, was that question addressed to me? I've been struggling to follow the entire conversation. Oh, uh, okay. I'm sorry if you, if you can't hear us. I, I won't. Uh, I won't put you on the spot. I, I, I understand. Thank you, uh, and, and and apologies. Um, I, I'm going to bring in a, a further question, uh, and I think we can direct this at Judith, which is from uh, Alphonse Nora at uh, Economics, uh, based in France. Uh, and that is just, uh, I suppose, the role that informal finance has been playing and whether, in fact, we, we've been seeing informal flows playing a bigger role and perhaps a more useful role uh, than, than formal policy responses. 
Yeah, I think what we, we've seen and, um, is some kind of retraction of the movement of informal finance into formal finance and the kind of reversal of that. And um, the reason is, uh, you know, picks up on some of the remarks that uh, Razi made about the fact that, um, you know, banks are not necessarily going to act in, in terms of the well-being of their economy. They're going to be looking for um, uh, uh, prioritising their own uh, financial you know, stability in terms of credit risk, and therefore we're seeing, uh, you know, credit crunch uh, spreading across the region as they uh, try to uh, stay, you know, stabilise their own uh, uh, institutional stability. And instead, what we're seeing is a emergence of the uh, informal sector, and, and for all the reasons that the informal sector exists, which is it offers quite a lot of advantages, particularly for low-income households. So, you know, its flexibility, uh, the fact that it's very rapid if you if you need uh, money for uh, to manage shocks, including, of course, uh, for people who are living hand to mouth existences in terms of their livelihoods um, and also maybe importantly they uh, you know most informal uh, finance is based in communities and um, so you see a little bit more um, forbearance and flexibility about people who may be uh, unable to pay and so this uh, the scare factor of taking on credit is is lower uh, because people would see that uh, people in their community um, uh, being reasonable about repayments, whether, whereas banks can be a bit more hard-nosed. So I, I think, you know, we're seeing a kind of retrenchment. And um, uh, as I said, some of the reasons that uh, informal finance is so useful for poor houses is, is, is uh, re-emerging. Brilliant. Uh, th th thank you very much for that, Judith. Um, and, and, and thank you uh, to the audience. I'm afraid we, we, we're moving towards a wrap-up. We haven't managed to get to all of the questions. And and my, my, my humble apologies for for that, but thank you for, for, for sending them through. I think we've, we've had some good debate. What I'd like to do, uh, and I'm going to ask for some extreme time discipline from, from each of our panelists, but I'd, I'd like to give you each a minute or so to, to, to wrap up. And, and, and ideally, let's try to make this a, a conversation that has some uh, sort of real kind of policy recommendations that, that we can all come away with, with a sort of to-do list. Um, and, and perhaps the way to do that is to simply say, you know, could you prioritize with your, your so what is the one policy recommendation if you, if you were sort of dictator for a day or, you know, the, the, you know, central bank governor to the world for a day? What is the one thing that you think we ought to do uh, that, that will strengthen uh, African banking systems and, and, and allow them to best see through this? And, and Razia, I'm going to, start with you just because you're, you're at the top of my, my screen. Sure. I, I think a, a very good recommendation would be focus on the recovery, create the conditions that are going to be conducive to economic recovery following this crisis, where there's a great deal of uncertainty still around that trajectory. What needs to be uh, happening in order to ensure that from a financial system perspective, it's absolutely about strengthening financial institutions in terms of the crisis response, do not do anything that might eventually take away from the capacity of financial institutions to play their part in the economic recovery. Thank you, Razia. And, and, and again, I'm going in uh, the random order that, that that is my screen. So, so Peter, I'm going to call on you next. Okay, thank you. Uh, my my 30 second uh, idea would be um, to strengthen the possibility of risk sharing among people, rather than supporting 
the banking system make sure that people are able to share risk to transfer uh, money because that has been uh, proven to be the most um, beneficial aspect of financial inclusion uh, in Kenya and elsewhere. So, uh, and allow non-banks to fill the void, uh, create the infrastructure that makes it possible for people to help each other and for the government to channel cash transfers to the most in vulnerable and in need. Thank you very much. Uh, and Zetse, could I, could I hand to you? Yeah, um, I think one is um, decide the demand and supply and, and where finance plays. I think buffering income shocks and, and making sure aggregate demand happens is important. So policy intervention with this government, private sector development finance, look at extended cash transfers because that's really going to be important. And then looking at financing firm activity in the context of you know low demand and and um uh, and uncertainty really creates a matrix for sector prioritization that allows for a restructuring of the economy um so whether you're going to look at sort of strengthening um engines that have driven the economy or using this as an opportunity to increase economic complexity uh to make the economy more inclusive i think it's really important and i think finally really share data information and collaborate i think it's really important that um, different financial service providers and different financial institutions understand the space and the capabilities that they have and how they can each play a very important role in a more coordinated um, response to, to COVID. thank you great thank you very much judith uh Thanks, thanks, Joseph. Um, I'd say two things. Um, uh, I already mentioned uh, the need to double down on uh, the um, deepening of uh, domestic financial systems and particularly uh, the need for local currency mobile uh, intermediation. So uh, much greater focus on deposit collection and save savings mobilisation um, and uh, moving that into uh, local currency investments. Uh, the other thing I'd say is I think we also need a greater emphasis on development banks um, uh, enrolling sectors that are key for uh, economic transformation and job creation so uh, agriculture uh, manufacturing and trade and that we should that sh including that should be uh, much greater funding expansion of regional and national development banks uh, that are specific to those sectors uh, because of their advantages in uh, executing uh, policy lending in those sectors because of their uh, on the uh, on the grounds their presence Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you very much, Judith. And uh, Adeyemi, I, I, I hope I hope that uh, you're able to hear us this time uh, uh, and, and you get the last word, uh, partly because you you're in the fortunate position of being a policymaker. So if I if I if I say what, you know, <laughs> if you could do what you liked, what would you do? You, you perhaps can do it. Right. Thank you. Um, I would just say that, um, I, as I said, I struggled throughout to follow, but I very much was determined to stay connected. I just want to say that the emphasis at this stage must be on providing support to the real sector um, in order to be able to keep uh, economies from going deeper and deeper into a recession. And um, so that we must find the fiscal means and the monetary means uh, to be able to support the real sector in the monetary sector, of course, around uh, moratoriums on credit, around um, uh, forbearance uh, on uh, restructuring and on um, non-performing assets, for instance, classification of non-performing assets. But overall, I think the bottom line is that, uh, yes, the financial sector 
uh, may get into trouble, but the real emphasis must be to keep uh, support uh, for the rail sector. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Adiyami. Um, I suppose I'm going to, to uh, just share a few of my observations, and and again, the, the the sort of great thing about my job is that I get to to listen to and talk to smart people, which means I don't have to be very smart myself. So I, I get a bit nervous when I'm asked to then uh, sort of summarise or or, or or provide the sort of key points that I, I think are important. But what I'm going to share is is I suppose three points that I that I think are important. Uh, that I certainly want to know more about and think that I will follow up on. Uh, and I certainly think there's scope for much further conversation on. And I think the first was, was coming back to Nzetsa's uh, opening comments about uh, viewing this through a, through a gender lens, that, that uh, it, is, you know, it is having a differential impact. We, we need to be aware of, of how that plays out. And I, I certainly think that's something that, that I... Would like to know more about and we'll look into and and, and uh we'll follow up on um i think the second uh is judith's comments and i i think that we perhaps haven't thought quite hard enough about some of what she said which is is really thinking through uh sort of bank failure in resolution and, and right now we're so sort of in the midst of, of of the current crisis and kind of knife to the throat that we're not really thinking about how we deal with the next steps, zombie banks, all of the stuff that we that we learned to deal with uh, in 08, 09, um, uh, but, but I think that, 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 that Judith and Razia pointed to. Uh, and the third, uh, perhaps will come as, as, as little surprise to the audience because it ties in quite neatly with the poll result, uh, which is just, again, we, we're thinking so hard about this economic crisis uh, we need to be thinking more about the coming credit crisis. And, and, and the poll question was, do you think there'll be a financial crisis in addition to the economic crisis? Uh, given the tone of this conversation, 80% uh, of you said yes, 15% uh, said no, 5% uh, were unsure. So uh, uh, that, that certainly, certainly is something that I think we need to all be thinking a lot more about is uh, the next stage and the next leg of this crisis. Um, if we were all in the real world and, and sitting in a room, it would be very easy for me to uh, sort of look at everyone and look at the audience and, 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 and ask you to you know, join me in thanking them by, by clapping hands. Um, uh, they've certainly been a fantastic panel. I've, I've learned an immense amount. And I'm not quite sure how we do this in this brave new digital world. But if, if you would all please, you know, from your homes, join me in, 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 in an absolutely heartfelt uh, thanks and appreciation to, to the ODI for organising this and to all of the panellists. So, thank you. Thank you, Jonathan. A pleasure. Thank you for listening. For more ODI live event podcasts, find us on SoundCloud or subscribe to the Overseas Development Institute podcasts via iTunes. Thank you.